Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. It's great to finally be back in studio. You can catch us right here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or find us on your favorite podcast app. You just search for the Bridge Builder podcast. Each week on the Bridge Builder show, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we bring our faith into public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment. You can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. And it wouldn't be the Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can start laying the bricks that build the common good. In today's episode, we're talking about the United States Supreme Court case examining the legality of ending the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the DACA program. We're going to be speaking with Ashley Feasley. She's the Director of Policy and Migration and Refugee Services at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about the call to advocate for clean water in Minnesota. It's a timely topic as many Minnesotans prepare to spend time at any one of our 10,000 lakes over the 4th of July. And stick around for the bricklayer segment where you can help build relationships with your neighbors, local community, and law enforcement during National Night Out. We're joined now on the line by Ashley Feasley. Ashley is the Director of Policy for Migration and Refugee Service at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Prior to working at the USCCB, she was Director of Advocacy for CLINIC, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network. She has served as an adjunct professor of law at Fordham University and the Columbus School of Law at Catholic University of America. In addition to testifying before Congress, she focuses her work in scholarship on migration law, immigration law, human trafficking, refugee and asylum law, and protection of vulnerable mobile populations. Ashley, it's good to have you on the program. Welcome to The Bridge Builder. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I really appreciate it. Well, as of this recording, we're expecting a big ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. So by the time that people hear this out there, it's probably going to come down. But uh, it was a case involving the president's ability to unilaterally end the DACA program. For those who aren't familiar, what is DACA and what is at stake in this case? Sure. So DACA is short for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's a program that was created by President Obama in 2012, uh, which allowed young people of a certain age who had been brought to the United States um, illegally by their parents to apply for basically reprieve from deportation and the ability to work and go to school legally. Um, The program required individuals to come forward and register with the Department of Homeland Security to show that they had no major crimes or felonies, and to demonstrate that they'd been living in the United States for at least five years prior and show evidence of that. The program, every two years, an individual has to renew and pay for a new application to have that work authorization and to not be subject to deportation. One more thing I think it's important to understand is DACA gives no path to citizenship. In fact, it's not even a status. It's just protection against the deportation and the ability to work legally. So to, one way of summarizing it, Ashley, might be to say that the executive branch and its enforcement of integra- immigration laws is not going to prioritize deporting these DACA recipients. Is that a fair characterization just to kind of nutshell it for people? 
That has been the case, yes. Under the Obama and during the Trump administration so far, DACA recipients have not been priorities for enforcement and deportation, although we could see that change. And so essentially it's saying that these are folks who've come here as young people. They may not have known any other country. And in terms of our overall application of immigration laws and enforcement of those, they're a low priority uh, vis-a-vis other types of persons who might uh, be get engaged with the immigration enforcement structure. So thanks for just laying that out for us a little bit more succinctly. I appreciate that. How many people and families are considered to have DACA status? So currently we have about... 700,000 individuals who have DACA. At the height of the program, we had probably about 800,000. But one thing to understand is you hear the words DACA and DREAMers thrown around kind of exclusively, and they're a little bit different. The DREAMers is a larger population of about 1.8 million. Uh, These are people who perhaps were a couple years too old or too young when the program began, and then when the program stopped accepting new people in 2017. They're called DREAMers in part because when the DREAM Act was originally authored by Senator Durbin and Senator Graham in 2001, this was the population that was intended. The bishops have been supportive of the DACA youth, but also do support the larger dreamer population as they were instrumental in the introduction of the DREAM Act in 2001 and have supported it every time it's been in Congress in a new session since then. The USCCB and the bishops nationally, uh, in almost really a voice of unanimity, have long supported comprehensive immigration reform, but absent the political will to do that, have really focused on DACA recipients, DREAMers, which you've nicely uh, made a little distinction between those two groups and what makes them distinct. Why has the church prioritized the protection of DACA recipients in the broader immigration debate vis-a-vis all kinds of other related questions? Sure. So first, I think the bishops continue to advocate for comprehensive immigration reform, and and that will continue until it, it occurs. The DACA issue and the DREAMers as the larger group um, have, I think, in many ways captivated America's intention as well as the Church's. Um, Public polling says that up to 70 percent of both Republicans, Democrats, and also independents support giving a path to citizenship for DREAMers. And in the Church, we see a similar context that's actually more personal and more spiritual. Many bishops Um, have personal connection to DREAMers or DACA recipients. Some actually have them on their staff and in the diocesan or archdiocesan staff. Many are leaders in the community and very much involved in in the life of the church. And I think that that's a huge personal element. And then just as it relates to the Catholic social teaching element of this, The Church obviously feels very strongly about protecting youth and families, and this very much has become a program that involves not only DACA recipients and DREAMers, but their families. We estimate that there's approximately another, up to another million individuals who either are members of nuclear families or extended families that have a DACA recipient or a DREAMer in their family. So uh, to see the possibility that those individuals could face deportation and ultimately family separation, I think is also very much contrary to our belief of the primary role of family in our society and in our church.
I'm glad you mentioned family separation, and we've had a lot of success changing the sense of the folks in the pew around these issues precisely because we have focused on this issue of family separation, and you've laid out nicely uh, what that means for DACA recipients, but there's also DACA families and and DACA parents as well. Um, What's the impact of a negative ruling in this case at the Supreme Court right now? What possibly might that be? The president has said that he wants to see a solution for them as well, but then at the same time, has attempted to end the the DACA program. What what are the implications? I think many court watchers are saying that it's not likely to be a favorable ruling for uh, advocates of immigrants and immigrant families. What are, what are your sense of what the uh, potential impact of a negative ruling might be? So, um, you know, as to a negative ruling, you know, it's important to understand that the president and the executive branch has large power in in this area, in the immigration area. And so, you know, we very likely could be facing a negative decision. And the impacts, a lot of it is going to depend on, frankly, uh, the president and his administration and Congress. Uh, The president, first and foremost, will likely be tasked and through his administration to decide if the program were to be viewed as legal to cancel, um, to decide how that cancellation or wind down would go. Uh, whether DACA recipients would immediately lose that protection from deportation I mentioned or their work authorization, or whether it would be wound down uh, over a certain period of months. Um, The other player here is that other branch of government, Congress. Um, It's very important, and, you know, we uh, as Catholics and then, of course, the bishops have long advocated for a legislative solution that gives a path to citizenship and permanency. The House has passed such a bill, H.R. 6 was passed a year ago, and now it really is on the Senate as to whether the Senate will act and pass some sort of relief as well. That itself, I think, also could be a factor here uh, that could change the future of, you know, the DACA recipients and, and the larger Dreamer population if a bill were to get through the Senate. In the practical sense of what we can do as Catholics and also what you can do for actual DACA recipients, I think it's very important to recognize the stress that families are going through with this decision and the need for good and reputable legal services. We are urging all Catholic charities and dioceses to consider doing legal screenings to see if there's alternate forms of relief that are available for DACA recipients, as well as to make sure that they are spiritually supported and they receive mental health support as well during this difficult time. We're speaking with Ashley Feasley. She's Director of Policy for Migration and Refugee Service at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Ashley, as you can tell, is a pro and answers questions before I'm even ready to ask him, what can you do? And she's already highlighted some of those things. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later in our conversation. But Ashley, it's not just these issues are not just about protection of immigrants and immigrant families, but also promoting the common good. And the USCCB has been putting out some great resources about how DACA eligible immigrants and their families are contributing to the economy. How much do DACA recipients contribute to the economy and and what types of things are they doing out there that maybe we don't see in the newspapers or, or don't even see unless we're taking the time to look? 
So I'm glad you asked me that because I think it's really important that we're talking about this right now, um, particularly when we think about COVID-19. You know, every person in this country, whether they're a citizen or not, have been impacted by COVID-19. And DACA recipients are on the front lines of the COVID-19 response. We know that approximately 62,000 of the DACA recipients, they are involved in healthcare, whether they are doctors or nurses or EMTs, and they're all involved in work on the front lines. We also know that DACA recipients are heavily involved in transportation and in food, whether it be restaurant or food supply. There's over 70,000 DACA recipients who are involved in restaurant and food supply work. And then outside of the context of COVID-19, I think it's important to understand the economic contributions of the DACA population uh, just to our general economic welfare of the country. On average, DACA recipients contribute over $42 billion annually to the U.S. economy, whether that be through taxes that they pay direct to the IRS or indirect in the form of sales tax and other things. And it also is through their consuming and their participation in our higher education system. So really, they are big contributors many ways, not just financially and service-wise, but also I would like to point out that we know of several men and women religious who are DACA recipients who are very active in promoting understanding about the program, but also how it has some really deep connections to the Catholic Church and and its ministering. So DACA recipients on the front lines of both the caretakers of the spiritual and uh, physical well-being of our Catholic communities, but also the broader community as well. So thanks for highlighting that and, and clarifying that for us. Ashley, in your experience of advocacy, what what is it that's holding back comprehensive immigration reform? There was a Senate bill that passed a number of years ago, and I think people look back on that and, and sort of regretfully is that might have been a really, really good opportunity. But what what is it that holds back comprehensive ref- immigration reform? It seems like that's a reasonable landing place in terms of integrating concerns about border security, but also providing a pathway to citizenship for folks who've been here, perhaps in some cases, many, many years. So I think it's the question of the age. We did see a pretty good comprehensive bill, S744, that passed the Senate in a bipartisan way in 2013, and it languished and was not picked up in the House, so it never made it to President Obama's desk. Similarly, we saw an effort in 2018 in the Senate to try and find a solution for the DACA recipients in response to the president attempting to cancel the program in the fall of 2017. That's actually the subject of the Supreme Court litigation, and we were not able to get to go. I think that there's a number of things that really have held back. One of the things is, frankly, I feel we need to do more education about the benefit of what immigration can do for our country, for citizens as well, not just for those who would be receiving, you know, the ability to stay here legally and a path to citizenship. But I think another thing is also the politicization. Sometimes this issue becomes a little bit of a political football for both parties. And it's very important. And this is where, as a Catholic, uh, and certainly the bishops themselves, 
Schultz talking about, I think, the moral and human, you know, dimensions of the immigration issue is where we need to be very rooted and focused. Because it, it has been, frankly, I think, utilized by both parties in a way that has not very much reached the common good, as you say, uh, for the immigrants and refugees who are our brothers and sisters in this effort for full integration in this country. Oftentimes, the debate is characterized, like you said, by the, the hot button rhetoric, you know, the open borders or asylum or these sorts of terms that have a lot of connotations, but aren't in reality the actual nature of the policies that are being discussed. How have you been successful in reframing the conversation when you're approached by folks who may have heard the rhetoric or the terms or are watching cable news and get that's their primary source of information or reading their favorite blog or periodical? How have you been successful in reframing the conversation about what the actual policies are that are being discussed and why they're good or less good? So I think it all goes back for us to the Catholic social teaching. We have a document on our Justice for Immigrants website called the Catholic Social uh, Principles on Migration. And they lay out the teaching uh, that is from the Bible, from the catechism, that reflects how our policies are moved forward for the bishops. Um, And there's some very simple concepts there that I think resonate with everyone. One is the right to migrate, uh, you know, the right to have a common access to a good and decent family life if you're facing violence and persecution. The other is the right not to migrate, the right to stay in your home country and not be forced out and to have the chance for, like I said, a decent family life. And another one that I think is really important for us to think about is the right of nations to protect their borders. That is a a Catholic social teaching principle. I think people need to be reminded that the bishops adhere to that. But the bishops are also very articulate in the fact that that right comes with responsibilities. And the responsibilities is that those laws have to be humane and justly implemented and transparent in how they are. And that's something that we, we struggle with a lot, making sure that, you know, efforts at keeping us safe, you know, are not infringing upon or harming vulnerable populations who really are seeking refuge in a country that has a tradition of refuge and has the ability to give that with the proper procedures. And so these principles are all things that I try to spend as much time as I can with, whether it's, um, you know, a general Catholic audience, people on the Hill. The other thing, and I would say this just for anybody who wants to learn more, is that our immigration system really is broken. Um, It was created in the 1960s, uh, the principle, the INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act, and it doesn't reflect, I think, the needs of our country now, nor the conditions of what the world are, are now seeing. And so many people ask me, well, why can't this person just come legally? And I think many people are surprised when the response is, "There's no way for them to come legally. They That's don't. Correct, yep. They're not a, 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 you know, a worker in a category that can fit into one of the visa categories, or they don't have a family member uh, that has an ability for them to migrate, or they come from a country like Mexico or and India where, for certain family categories, the wait can be 20 years." And I think that is something that we need to do more on, explaining just how broken the system is and how, you know, people who sometimes are in this circumstance, it's not that they're trying to flout the rules. 
the rules are broken, and, and we do need to fix them. For many years in Minnesota, we've celebrated Immigration Sunday on Epiphany to bring more attention and education and advocacy to these issues. This year, we're moving Immigration Sunday to World Day for Migrants and Refugees, which is September 27th. Ashley, why are days like that, national and global observances on these questions, why are those important or helpful? Um, first off, I'm so excited that you all are moving the day. We previously did a lot of work on World Refugee, World Migration Week, and now we are taking the lead of the Holy Father and his World Day of Migrants and Refugees, which has been moved the last Sunday of September. And I think it's so important because it's a moment to, frankly, honor and remember our connection to migrant immigrant and refugee families. They're our brothers and sisters. They're part of our church community, and they're in our history. And the church in all its diverse pro-life and respecting the sanctity of life, this is an element of that. And highlighting, I think, that work is so important. So any opportunity that we get, we try to be encouraging of that. I also think it's important for people to hear it at the local community level, uh, because that's where kind of change and education and awareness building occurs. Ashley, we've got time for one really brief question, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, but we have a presidential debate shaping up with uh, one candidate whose rhetoric around immigration is well known, the president, and another candidate, Vice President Biden, who was part of an administration that had deported, and I think this is right, correct me if I'm wrong, they deported more people than I think the last five presidents combined. So what what should Catholics be looking for with regard to immigration and migration issues during this campaign and in the debates? So first off, I'm so thankful that you actually raised this question. You know, while the Obama administration did advocate for comprehensive immigration reform and did very much support the bill, they did deport over 3 million people during the two terms of the administration. And so it is, it's a fact that must be addressed. That being said, we know from the rhetoric and, and frankly, the policies of the Trump administration that he has been very hostile to immigrants and refugees, both in act and in words. I would say to Catholics this, immigration is an issue that should be on the forefront of your mind as you look at the candidates. It's certainly going to be made a a forefront issue by President Trump, so you will have lots of opportunities to observe it. But you need to follow the policies of of the church and and the morals of the church as it relates to respecting the sanctity of, of, of human life and human decency, and looking at the policies as it relates to families, keeping families together, making sure that individuals don't have to flee, you know, countries and they have no place to go because we aren't doing asylum. And these are the things I think that are most important when you're looking at this aspect of selecting a candidate, focusing it on those human and moral dimensions. You know, that is what I think we should all expect. And frankly, we should expect more from our presidential candidates on this. It can't just be rhetoric. We need to have policies that explain how we're going to implement these ideas and how we're going to move forward to larger reform. 
Outstanding. What a great conversation. The church in the United States is blessed to have Ashley Feasley, a director of Thank policy you. for Migration and Refugee Services, working on the front lines of advocacy at Congress, poised, passionate, and principled, deeply rooted in the faith. Ashley, we're grateful for your work. Uh, blessings to you and the ministry and service that you bring to the church and to our nation. So thanks very much for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. Thank you so much. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what have you got in this week's mailbag segment? Yeah, so summer, it's here, and it's definitely a time that Minnesotans are wanting to get outside, probably enjoy some time on our lakes. But unfortunately, as many of our listeners are probably all too aware, water quality of those lakes is just deteriorating over the years, whether it's invasive species, agricultural runoff, algae blooms. And we really desire clean water, not only for recreation, but also everything else, eating, drinking, growing food, just staying clean. So with these things in mind, the bishops during the 2020 regular session, and really for many years, advocated for clean water policies. And we've asked Minnesota Catholics to advocate for these policies. So today's question came from one of our Catholic Advocacy Network members. They wanted to know, why is the Minnesota Catholic Conference asking for Catholics to speak up on these issues? And what are some actual policies being worked on that could make a difference? Well, you've already answered part of the question, Kit, in your uh, buildup there to the to the listener's uh, comment in the sense that, yeah, there's a stewardship issue here that uh, we have, that stewardship is not just about preserving things for our own use, but also being in solidarity with future generations and making sure that our natural resources, which are a gift to be stewarded and not simply to be consumed as we will, are available for the uh, enjoyment and use uh, by future generations. And so that's an issue that speaks to agricultural runoff, how we use our lakes and rivers and streams, how we deplete resources, what we put into those lakes uh, with regard to boating and all sorts of other things. But one issue that's also big on the horizon with regard to water is clean access to clean drinking water. The Catholic Church affirms in the Catechism that by its very nature, and this is a quote, water cannot be treated just as another commodity among many. And Pope Benedict said, the sustainable management of water is a social, economic, environmental, and ethical challenge that involves not only institutions, but the whole of society. Water is needed for human flourishing, and all beings, human beings have a right to it by virtue of their God-given dignity. Most of our bodies are made up of water. We need water to survive, and there's a finite amount of it out there. And so we need to be good stewards of that, especially when it comes to having access to clean drinking water. And we saw in places like Flint, Michigan, where aging infrastructure and other problems created a significant health hazard there um, a few years ago. So Minnesota's water in, clean water infrastructure is aging. There are a lot of policies out there to promote um, water conservation, but we're focusing this session during the as we debate a bonding bill at the Minnesota Capitol on water structure infrastructure. And there's a water infrastructure initiatives fund which appropriates 200 billion toward 
uh, three of Minnesota statewide clean water and drinking water infrastructure programs. So again, we have a bonding bill that's coming up that's to finance state construction projects and promoting clean water during that bonding process is very important. For more information, Catholics who are listening can go to mncatholic.org. Again, mncatholic.org and under Issues and Action, both take action, but also at the same time see our information in one-pagers for more info about those bills. Great. Thanks, Jason. And we have just another minute or so. We want to leave everyone with a practical takeaway. What could people do for this week's Bricklayer segment. So communities across Minnesota and across the country will mark National Night Out on August 4th. That's just about one month away, so there's still time to plan how you and your neighbors can get involved. Perhaps you can even get your parish to participate. National Night Out is an annual community-building campaign that promotes police-community partnerships and neighborhood camaraderie to make our neighborhoods safer, more and caring places to live. And during this year in which we're talking about police violence after the death of George Floyd and the challenges with regard to police-community relations, National Night Out is a really important opportunity for you to build relationships, as we like to highlight at the Minnesota Catholic Conference and on this program, building bridges between the community and the police. I've attended many National Night Outs over the years and really been thankful for the interactions I've had for, with police and the way in which they've uh, been able to provide some really enlightening insights about their work and some of the challenges that they face. So I'd really, really encourage that. Bring your kids, bring your family, and maybe your parish can even get involved with National Night Out. Again, National Night Out is August 4th. Some communities are moving that because of COVID-19 to October 6th, but either way, uh, check it out and get more information about National Night Out and how you can build your own community gathering at natw.org. Again, that's natw.org. We'll also post to our SoundCloud page a website that is aggregating various towns that are holding National Night Out on August 4th. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Remember, you or your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. Contact us at show at mncatholic.org for sponsorship opportunities. If you have questions for our mailbag segment, connect with us on social media through the Minnesota Catholic Conference or send those to show at mncatholic.org. Catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions in a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins for Kit Cross for the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks so much for listening and have a blessed day.